Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Earfirm Network. On War. Criticism and Examples. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and today we'll be discussing criticism and examples. But before we get to that, just a couple of few notes. First off, uh, we've been kind of going through this, this harrowing tale of a rising gene-stealer cult together, as my, my guys are coming together. And Toto, as you know, he's been on the show a few times in one of the battle reports on our YouTube channel, and uh, you know, I speak about him frequently. He started with the Grey Knights, and he's a tryhard. He knows he's a tryhard, where he gets something, he sinks his teeth into it, and he really applies himself. And so he went from being, to, oh, pretty quick. And so he's, he's definitely in the way uh section of the story right now. And we lined up against one another, and our first couple of rounds were flubs for both of us. But then we got stuck in, and I ended up winning very handily. It was, I don't even know the score, but it was it was ridiculous um, by how much I won. I, I also played the, the objectives and everything, and that's how I got my points. But it was just interesting to me as I was um, kind of kind of winning this match. The image on one side, you have the emperor's finest creations, the the result of genetic engineering and nearly magical uh, proportions of science put together into a perfect warrior designed to help bring the Imperium to a, a, a massive place, to a very prominent place in the galaxy, against a scrappy boy with a power saw. <laughs> and my power saws do work, let me tell you, ladies and germs. Uh, my power saws do work. And so that was fun. It was a fun match. Um, I know he's looking, spoiling for another match, and so you'll get to hear all about that earlier on in the week. Uh, TF and I played a game, and he handily walloped me. Um, now, I made him pay for it. I nearly tabled him as a result. He had one unit left, and I had had one. And part of this was because I had a roving acolyte bomb, and so it would pop up and charge in and kill a bunch of things, or kill one big thing most of the time with a bunch of uh, heavy industrial cutters. And then I would use a, a stratagem to pop them back underground, and then next turn pop them back up and attack something else and pop them underground. It was really really kind of a funny way to go about things. He hated it. Oh, he was so mad. Oh, he was so mad at me. <laughs> but it was awfully fun. And demonstrated clearly the principles of an insurrection. You know, you think you put it down and then it pops up and does damage someplace. And even though it's not technically winning, an insurrection can still do a massive amount of damage against an occupying force. So we'll use that as our excuse. That was what we were demonstrating in that game. Sure. 
But the only other thing I have to talk about is uh, a couple of other things in regards to Bellagarth moving forward. Uh, first one is that I get to go to Beltane. Uh, we're doing it as kind of a business venture. I'm going to go and do some interviews and, uh, you know, enjoy the field time, get to get a sense for it again. And I'm looking forward to seeing my Middle Tennessee brethren and, my, of course, my Dark Angels. I miss you all terribly. So look forward to that. I'll have a bunch of interviews coming out of that, much like we were planning for Battle for the Ring, except that this one will definitely be going through. And, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it myself. The other thing I'm looking forward to is here pretty quick I get to start back up volunteering with my students, uh, teaching them fighting. You know, this, this club that I started back in 2006, and I've been working with these high school students, teaching them how to fight and hopefully bringing them over to Bellagarth. It's, it's been a lot of fun, and I have the honor of being able to get back in it and, and do it again. So I'm, it's, it's one of those fulfilling things. You know, I'm not a parent. I don't necessarily plan to be a parent, just a piece of personal information. But I, I really admire those of you who are, just as an aside. Like, being a parent is one of the most important jobs on the planet because you're literally bringing up the next generation, like the continuation of the species. That's probably the most important thing that we've got going on and never had going on. So parents are awesome. Um, and uh, doing it well is a is a definitely a chore. I like working with students, these high schoolers, for, you know, two hours once a week. And then I get to go home <laughs> and not deal with high schoolers anymore. So, again, praise to you, parents. Praise to you, high schoolers. Uh, but I'm going to sit in my, in my cave and read my books and then talk to you all about it because that's how we do. One final note before we move on to the, to the main story today is to touch a little bit more on what's happening in the Ukraine. Now, again, I don't have boots on the ground. I am not an advisor to the president or anything along those lines. This is just me watching the news and looking through the articles that are coming out and putting together kind of what appears to be what's happening. And what appears to be happening is, of course, the plan has stalled. Even the best plan will always stall. And there are certain cities that are putting up a fight at the moment. Now, reports of atrocities have already started. As we discussed before when we were talking about uh, the Vendée and the, uh, the atrocities that come when you're dealing with a civilian population that's involved in the fighting, we're beginning to see that, unfortunately. So I would say um, let's look to the future and helping our Ukrainian brothers and sisters and, and folks and, and uh, making sure that they have what they need to rebuild their country and to rebuild their lives because this is a devastating time. So, But let's get into our study of Clausewitz and our next section, which deals with the idea of productive examination. Today's section deals with criticism of doctrine and using examples when we're talking about uh, things within a military science concept, much like we do at the end of each episode. So it's kind of uh, cool that he goes over what, what different examples are, but that's toward the end of this section. So let's start with criticism. Criticism is a part of just about everything. When we're going through school, everything is criticized, from our handwriting to our clothes to the answers that we give on our tests. We are subject to criticism all over the place. And the reason for this is not because people are mean. People are mean, don't get me wrong. There are absolutely mean people in the world. But this criticism serves to create the boundaries that are life, to reinforce the lessons that will help us to succeed. 
So criticism, for instance, of one's musical talent will help one to know the rhythm and the notes a little bit better, and therefore can come up with a practice that makes them a better player. But they wouldn't be able to be a better player without that criticism. Again, we don't have to be mean with it. When we're talking criticism, it's not hating oneself or thinking oneself bad or evil or anything along those lines. In fact, for a criticism to take place, we can't have those things in our mind. It's not a matter of right and wrong. It's not a matter of good or bad. It's a matter of what works and what doesn't work. Which tools we wish to use, at which time, and which tools we choose to leave in our bag. This is what we use criticism for, is coming up with these ideas. And real principles, the ones that are actually useful to us, these are often produced more through criticism than through doctrine. We can sit here and make up what we think the rules should be all day long. But that doesn't mean that's what the rules are. So this criticism of, of what we're doing produces a far better principle, which then leads to better doctrine than just the doctrine itself. Because all of this criticism isn't just a matter of tearing things down. That's not the point or the purpose of the criticism that we're talking about. This criticism's goals are to find those undoubtable truths, those things that cannot be disproven. You know, gravity moves at 9.8 meters per second squared every time, all the time. And if you find otherwise, please let me know, because that'd be kind of cool. But we know that to be an undoubtable truth. So that's the goal. That's one of the goals of any of these principles. It's the goals of any of this criticism is to find those undoubtable truths. The next goal that we would have is to discern cause and effect, to see that clear line between what we do and what comes of what we do. Having this be a clear idea, making sure that we understand that cause and effect relationship means that we can use it to our advantage, right? And then, of course, we have to banish our assumptions. Assumptions, apart from the old adage of, you know, you and me, but they, are, they lead us to pitfalls. Assuming, for instance, that our opponent will act the same as they did in the last battle is folly. Because that's based on an assumption that everything is the same on their side of the field. To assume that we know how an individual fights just because we fought one member of their unit or one member of their realm, one member of their community. Well, that's not true either. So these assumptions, we have to take them aside. And criticism helps us do that. Criticisms help, the criticism helps us look at those assumptions and say, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't hold up. So, undoubtable truths, cause and effect, banishing assumptions. That's what we're after with this stuff. That's what, that's what we're keyed in on finding. And this critical uh, consideration is something that we're trying to figure out the means. We're trying to figure out what we have to work with and how we get the desired effects with it. How do we use what we have to get what we want? Which in this case is victory. When we're dealing with military science, anything we have needs to contribute toward victory. That's the point. And so it's good to consider the means and how they have existed and how we can use them to get to their desired effects. However, this can lead down a rabbit hole. One can get too admired in the details. And it's important not to get lost in this labyrinth because there are so many details. You can look at everything. I mean, you can look at the stuff that actually makes sense, like supply trains and you know weather conditions and that sort of thing. You can look at whether or not the cook has a mole on his left shoulder. But that detail is probably superfluous, right? <laughs> that labyrinthian detail we're talking about. So 
Some things are important, some things aren't. And we're using these things, we're using this, this criticism, this consideration, these goals, in order to establish a good working theory, good working principles. But even though we're seeking to find those undoubtable truths, we have to acknowledge that to have a theory that includes every abstract truth is a pipe dream. Even in terms of physics, we're trying to make things that are true, but don't agree, make sense. When we're looking at the quantum level, as opposed to looking at the larger, like gravitational level, these things don't make sense. They don't really, they don't really match up. Some of the math just doesn't, they, they exist. You know, they can be proven in a, in a laboratory setting through observation, but they don't match up. That's the whole point of string theory, right? Trying to make those things make sense. But within military science, where we don't have those fixed laws, trying to come up with a theory that includes these truths is a pipe dream. It's just not going to happen. So if we're going to have a positive doctrine, something that we can do and move forward, those doctrines need to rely on rules, principles, and methods that come from theoretical inquiry. It's not enough to just have a doctrine ready and established just because it came from a previous generation or from a previous idea of making war, making war gaming. These doctrines stand ready. We can have various various ones in our, in our pocket, in our tool bag, but they're just tools. They don't necessarily have to be that way. They don't necessarily have to be used that way. So for instance, a doctrine of putting our calf on the wings in order to flank, prevent flankers, and then come in and crush fleeing infantry. That's a doctrine. That's a positive doctrine that has been shown to work a lot. That doesn't mean it's the way we have to do it. You know, we could stack the cab on one side and swing them around like they did at Gettysburg. We can put them in the center and use them to break up, or whatever the case may be. There's a lot of times where uh, these doctrines can be picked and chosen as they are needed. Or like never splitting your forces, right? That's something that is drilled in constantly, never split your forces. But there are situations where it would be wise, tactically sound even, to split one's forces. So these doctrines... They're not absolute. They're there to be used as a commander or fighter sees fit, right? And just because a doctrine works once doesn't mean it always will. We can't rely on them, right? All the time. Like we need to switch that stuff up because just because it works one time doesn't mean it's going to work the next time because the situation is different. Our opponent is different. The field is different. The weather is different. The number of people we have in our team is different. Their moods are different. There's things that are different. So sometimes doctrines just, a good doctrine doesn't necessarily work. And sometimes flukes do. I've seen entire battle plans based on the fact that one time a fluke happened and it was brilliant. I mean, it was an absolutely brilliant thing and it, and it took the field by storm, but it was a fluke. It cannot be repeated, not reliably. And so just because something works once doesn't mean it's going to continue working, right? It's, we have to continue looking at these things. And, and based on this, an unreasonable bias may emerge, right? We may suffer a, a, a very bad defeat in the line, for instance. Let's say I'm a line fighter and I suffer a nasty defeat. Well, I might have an unreasonable bias against line fighting at that point. I might think it's not useful or it's too dangerous or whatever the case may be. And, and really, I'm just cutting myself off from a doctrine that might be useful to me. Or to say that we always need to do one thing, right? I, I relied on this one fighter and this one time, take turkey feathers, for example. 
You know, it's like he, he, he almost consistently is a good flanker. So I'm going to rely on him as a flanker, right? Just because that's a good doctrine doesn't mean it's always going to work. Just because flukes work doesn't mean, yeah. So we just have to watch this. Probability must always be considered, but also sometimes bold. We, can have, we have to break these things aside and just try something new, just to see. Just to see. And that can produce a new good tactic or something we don't want to do again. But when we're criticizing things, there's, there's certain operations that we're going for, things that we're, we're trying to accomplish beyond those goals, right? But there's operations that we use when we're going through this critical process. And the first one, very similar to what we do here, is, in, is historical investigation and determining doubtful facts, right? There's a lot of things in history that don't quite match up. That's why it's nice to get different sources. You know, if we're studying World War I, you get sources from Austria-Hungary and Germany and Russia, England, America, like all those different things coming in where they match up. That's probably the truth. When you're dealing with somebody like Herodotus, take it with a grain of salt. You know, there's a lot of doubtful facts in there. But, and, and so the facts are only as good, or the, the historical investigation is only as good as the facts. So looking back at like the Punic Wars or anything like that for like hard rules, it's been a long time since then. We probably don't have the facts that we need to make those decisions. So we have to make sure. So the historical investigation is one really, really important critical oper uh, operation when it comes to military science. The next one would be, as we said before, tracing cause to effect. It's one of the very critical operations, making sure that we understand not getting too lost in the minutia, but as a general rule, as a general probability, talking about cause and effect, right? And then lastly, we're testing the means employed, like we were talking about with bold moves or, or trying good tactics more and, and bad and fighting all that out. That comes from testing the means employed. We're testing our army. We're testing our flankers. We're testing our probabilities and our biases, right? Testing our means employed, seeing if we can do it more effectively, if there's a better way for us to accomplish our goal. And when we're talking about means, we have to understand that those means that are employed are proportional to what we're trying to achieve. The higher the object, the greater the means that are required to achieve it. You have a size and a scope of conflict to consider. You know, if I want to take over a city, I'm going to need far less in terms of supply and manpower and, and all those other things in order to actually do so, far more than I would prosecuting a large land campaign, right? Different means are required to achieve these different objects. Taking over a whole country is very different than taking over a block of a city, right? So we have to match our means with what we want to achieve and, and use our means in a way that, that helps us achieve what we want to achieve. You know, you can have the best army in the world, but if we don't know how to use it, it doesn't do us much good. Mostly just a big target at that point. But if we've practiced with it, you know, if it's something that we have tested the means, right, it's easier to know how to use these things. So this all sounds pretty heady, right? We're, we're doing a lot of thinking with, with what we're studying in this chapter, a lot of introspection. And with this comes the tempering of, of where we're getting our knowledge from, which is very important. Experience, by and large, is the best teacher. Nothing will teach you fighting like getting out on the field. Nothing will teach you Warhammer 
like stepping up to the table and seeing how the rules work in motion or any, any other wargaming for that matter. Having hands-on experience, trying it, just having that is the best teacher. We learn the most from it. However, study does benefit a warrior, soldier, commander, fighter, person, whatever. But it does benefit us. Because within history, within study, we can find other things that relate. You know, throughout the study of, of uh, chemistry, they really come up with things like gunpowder. That's not something that directly relates to military study, but it did eventually relate directly to military study. But when we're looking at these studies, Clausewitz says that historic study is superior to philosophical study. And I have to agree with him here. I mean, I love philosophy. I'm the first person to want to sit down and talk to you about Kant and Kierkegaard, about Hobbes and Locke, uh, differing opinions and all the beautiful things that fed into the, for instance, the revolution that we're studying right now. The whole lot of ideas working there. We could talk about that all day. But it doesn't matter much when we're dealing with actual military theory, when we're dealing with strategy and tactics, right? That philosophical study over there doesn't benefit us much. And even the study of ethics and morals, while absolutely good, St. Thomas Aquinas's uh, rules on just war theory, treatment of prisoners and all that sort of thing, that study is good, but it's not going to give us the same tactical prowess as studying over historical military stuff. How did people perform various things in the field? What were the support systems that they had? What politics did they have to work around? These things are very useful to us. But we can only critique what we know, right? If we're not seeing it, if we're not, not experiencing it or reading about it, then we can't critique it. And that's why the study is important, at least in my eyes. Because again, experience is awesome. You know, you can go to tournaments and events, you can fight and play games all over the country, all over the world and gain quite a bit from it. You know, we think about the chess players, the prodigy chess players who are go able to go around and, and achieve such notoriety with their grasp of the strategy of chess. But every single one of them benefits from study. They may have the raw talent, but reading up on the masters, how they answer you know, Sicilian defenses or whatever the case may be, those things are important. Those strategies, those tactics, those ideas are very important towards striving towards victory. And so one's own experience is great. And one should always seek to gain more and more experience because that is the way that one achieves true understanding. But we can broaden what we know. We can broaden what we can critique by reading more. That's part of the reason that we, we do the studies that we do here at the end is to broaden what we know. I've never been in the French Revolutionary Wars. I know. Weird, right? And yet I can read about them and think about them and see how they apply to wargaming, to my experience with everything going on. So it, it does help. But we also have to understand something. And I've, I've touched on this idea before, but we have to understand that we are looking back in time. And I know that seems, well, duh, we're looking back in time, we're reading a book. But what I mean is we have the power of hindsight. We can look back at Waterloo and say, oh, Napoleon, he made this mistake. Oh, classic Napoleon. I would have done something different. You know, look at the Battle of Gettysburg and say, oh, I would have done something totally different at this particular place, uh, rushed at a different angle, a little round top, or, you know, held the charge uh, from picket and remaneuvered or something along the lines. We can sit there and, and tut all day long and criticize even the greats, you know, like Alexander. But the truth of the matter is, 
inferior minds and critics are not better than the greats. And that's what I'm counting me as. I don't know about y'all, but I'm not one of the greats. But we can still sit here and critique them, but, but that doesn't mean that we're better than them. E even the greats, too, fall victim to vanity. If they are hoisted by their own pretards, start to believe their own legend, as it were, it can lead them into a lot of trouble. But to that, to that last point, when we point out the error of others, it doesn't mean we wouldn't have done the exact same thing. You know, if, if we were in that situation, you know, if we're, we're sitting there at the Battle of Agincourt, you're the French nobility and you've got your cav and you've got those scrappy little English infantry on the other side. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you commit yourself to it? Why wouldn't you make a grand display in order to shake their morale and do that frontal charge, that glorious frontal charge to break their ranks? It was the age of the horse. That was the way to do things. So we can look back. We can look back at that commander and say, oh, they should have done something differently. They should have gone around to the sides or whatever. But that is knowing what we do now. Knowing what happened with Henry and knowing what happened with the weather. Those are bits of information that we have in hindsight. So it's easy. It's easy for us to look back and say, oh, yeah, <laughs> so-and-so got it wrong. Custer, that's a famous one around here. I'm from Montana. People love to talk about how Custer got it wrong. I'm not going to sit here and defend Custer, by the way, even though he was a Civil War hero. Not a great human being. But there's a huge criticism of the fact that he was kind of out in the open without the rest of the army when he faced down basically the entire Sioux Nation. But it wasn't really his fault. That was the plan. Like, they broke up into divisions. Remember, that was fairly common, especially after the French Revolution and the Napoleonic tactics that showed that these division, this division strategy really worked. Well, they didn't know where the Sioux Nation was. They knew because these are nomadic folks. They move around. It's not like they just have a, a solid city where it's like, there's the Sioux Nation. No, they, uh, they could be anywhere. So they're moving through, you know, Custer, a few other commanders are moving through the area. They're trying to remain in contact with one another, but it's hard. I, I don't know if you've been to eastern Montana or eastern Washington for that matter, but the rolling hills are deceptive. A lot of places to get lost, a lot of ravines and gullies. And so that, that information was patchy, moving between. And when Custer first hit, he didn't think that there was a lot of people there. It would have been a small skirmish to begin with. And so he's like, okay, I got them. I got them by surprise. And his entire career He'd use this technique of engage the warriors and then move around in a flanking position, seize the village itself, seize the women and children, and use them as, a, as leverage to get the warriors to stand down. Underhanded? Yes. Ignoble? Yeah. Effective? It seemed to be. However, people talk. And as we said, just because a doctrine works one time, or even many times, doesn't mean it's going to continue working. And a big reason for that is people can study us too. It's not just us looking outwards and saying, you know, I'm going to study the Russians because we might be at war with them. I'm going to study the Germans because it's World War II and we were going to be at war with them. It, they're going to be studying us as well. We have to assume their opponent is just as smart, if not smarter than we are. And so they did. They knew. They knew that was Custer's plan. And so when he went around, and the, and the um, archaeological evidence kind of points to this, kind of went around for the flank and then realized, uh-oh, they had been prepared. And there was an entire, entire force waiting. So I chased him down. And you just kind of see the smear 
of the cavalry moving away from the area where they were retreating and trying to get away. But of course, again, they have the entire Sioux nation basically bearing down upon them. That's not going to happen. So the best horse lords in the world, not going to happen. So it's easy though, but it's easy looking back, especially as somebody who is like a lot of Montanans were not raised with a whole lot of knowledge. They know that Custer went, he got his butt whipped by the Sioux and it was because he was stupid, right? That was, that's the by and large what's believed, but that he was, was he vain? Oh yes. Oh yeah. The man believed his own legend like a, like you wouldn't believe the man was incredibly vain, very full of himself, but that doesn't mean that we wouldn't have done the exact same thing in this situation. I guess that's my point. That's my point. But we're talking about this vanity though, right? How error and vanity um, absolutely play into whether or not we win or not. But there's also an error and there's a vanity when we're displaying our ideas. When we're trying to speak with our comrades, trying to teach each other what's going on, you know, at war colleges or at, you know, actual school, wherever the case may be, there are vanities that we have to watch out for there as well. Because anybody, anybody can fall victim to vanity. For one thing, we can have what uh, Clausewitz calls the stupid application of a one-sided system as a set of formal laws. And what we're sitting, saying here is we can practice all we want. For instance, when the gladiator program first started off, I had folks practicing in line and drill formation. I was a drill sergeant or, a, <laughs> well, not a, not a drill sergeant per se, but a drum major. Um, you know, I, I, so I had the marching, I had folks marching in formation. We did drill downs and all that sort of thing. And so within that format, working with those, uh, formations within that discipline, it was easy to have, but it was a one-sided system, right? I was teaching it as like, these are the drills. This is how it's going to work. And it was being portrayed as that's how the things, how things were. But that one-sided system did not hold up. You know, folks would hit the field and realize that that sort of rigidity and thinking did not apply <laughs> to the actual battlefield. It was a one-sided system, you know, that I had put together because it was ideal. At the time, I wasn't willing to necessarily live in reality. I wanted to live in ideals. I didn't want to criticize. I wanted my doctrines, right? Made some lethal decisions there. But it was used as formal laws. And so we have to, we have to make sure that we're not falling victim to that. Just because we believe it doesn't mean that it will always be. And just because we practice something, just because it's a, a one-sided system, doesn't mean it's going to hold up in reality. It's one of the reasons why it's recommended that if you're practicing fighting, that you find a practice partner and spar with them. Because shadow boxing and work on a bag will only go so far. It can teach you the strikes that you need to do and some of the force that needs to be applied, but a punching bag doesn't actively block. It doesn't actively throw shots. It doesn't have footwork. So in this, we can develop a great system for defeating a punching bag, right? Sit there and, and just be able to wallop on the thing. But that's a one-sided system. There is no resistance. There's nothing that is, is nothing to criticize us. To, again, resist us there. So this one-sided system does not work. And if we try to keep it as formal laws, when we hit the enemy, it will not work. Vanity. Here's one. Overuse of technical terms, expressions, and metaphor, because it takes away the meaning. Oh, Clausewitz. Clausewitz, Clausewitz, Clausewitz. Have you seen your book, sir? Have you seen the thickness of your book? Have you seen the overuse of technical terms, expressions, <laughs> uh, 
and metaphor. Oh, you goofy man. Of course, I'm in no position to uh, criticize either. A lot of times, um, the historical sections are like two pages. It's two pages worth of information that, of course, I go and find other things on and pull it together, but I'm extrapolating a lot of information from those two pages. You know, same thing with these with these sections. I could just read to you out of Clausewitz, but instead I spend a half hour discussing these themes with you. Hopefully I'm not taking away from the meaning too much. Hopefully I'm not overusing technical terms or expressions or metaphor. But even in doing this, there may be vanity. I might be making errors, which is why I ask you all to check me. I ask you all to be reading at home and, and having a conversation because Lord knows I'm only human. I can make errors, especially ones concerning vanity. And a big one here, the last one that he talks about, is the misuse of historic examples. Because it's easy. It's easy, easy to misapply examples because of a superficial understanding. And it brings false conclusions. We don't necessarily understand everything that was at play. A good example of this would be when they were using historic examples to demonstrate the tactics that they wanted to use in World War I. They misapplied those examples because the conditions that were in World War I were not present in those examples, so it was misapplied. The, the Romans didn't have to deal with smoothbore bus muskets. The Romans didn't have to deal with a bayonet. You know, there's a lot of thing, uh, things uh, that, that are new and why these things will not work. And just, you know, being able to look at it and say, oh, well, this fits my, my narrative, but it's not actually correct, you know? But let's talk about that real quick. I know I've got like, what is it, two and a half minutes <laughs> left of this section. But it was really cool, this last idea that he had of proofs, right? Because we have different types of historic proof. And that's kind of what we do at the end of the show, is do a historic proof to kind of go along with the concepts that we discussed in this first portion. And there's different. There's four different types, he says, of historic proof. The first one is, it was one that provides explanation. Oh, okay, I see why this happened because, okay, look in history and this is what happened there. So this explains what occurred with what we're looking at. It gives us a, a tool to analyze with by looking back and saying, okay, same thing kind of happened here, which means that X, Y, and Z occurred, right? The second one is application. So if we're using that historic proof, we look at something and we say, oh, you know, this is very similar to a situation that was faced by Stonewall Jackson in the in the seven days battle i can apply the things that he did or didn't do to this situation based on this historic proof application possibility you know we're looking at a situation be like okay in history i've seen something similar here and it can go one of two ways right there's a possibility of this happening possibility of this happening because of our historic proof we've looked back and we can kind of understand it and the last one is circumstantial proof we find ourselves in the same circumstances. And so a lot of these different ones will apply, but we also have to be careful to not like not over associate with the past because the past is gone. The past is dead. Those lessons are here. We can learn from them, but we also have to understand that the people who wrote those histories and performed those deeds, they are dead. And we are here and we are working with their, with their framework. We're not the only ones, by the way. You and I, we're not the only ones reading Clausewitz right now. Others people are too. They're learning. So this changes the circumstances, right? And so when we look at this, it is easy to misapply these examples. And he, he actually uses a very good one 
Um, I didn't actually go into it because it didn't, it was further along. He was talking about Napoleon and using that within his example section. And I thought it was really good, but it's also four years ahead of where we are in our story of the French Revolution. So I thought I'd hold off a little bit on that one. But there's a lot of different examples within there of these, of these historic proofs. But it's important, and I, and I stress this idea as a historian, as somebody who has studied history for a long time, to make sure that we understand the circumstances in which those things arose. We can't understand the explanation, application, or possibilities if we don't know why that situation arose in the first place, if we don't understand the factors that played into that. Because if we don't understand that, we can't actually understand the lesson at all. So it's important. It's important not to do a, a cursory glance of history, but to actually kind of dig in. And that's part of the reason that we've been doing these sections like we have. When I first started off, we did just the one-offs, right? We were like, okay, we're going to look at this battle and then this battle. And they didn't make sense. They could be centuries apart in totally different hemispheres. And as a, as a person who's versed in history, I kind of understood the background, right? I understood where it was all coming from. And the misfortune that I occasionally have is that I assume everybody else reads this stuff as much as I do, which is obviously wrong because you all have lives. But in doing so, I discounted the fact that there were circumstances and factors feeding into it that weren't apparent to the listener, that they may not understand why Sekigahara went the way that it did with the information that was provided. So, uh, you know, we started with the Afghan war, but we're kind of going to, we're going to very much continue this trend because I think it's very important to provide this framework, to provide the understanding, because we talked about the battles of Volmi and Jamaps and the circumstances and, and factors going into those battles were just as important as the result. Same thing with what we're going to be going over today in section three. So it's very important when we're using these proofs to get our information correct so we don't misapply them and, and get the wrong lesson because that will go badly for us. So just to recap real quick, we were looking at the way that criticism works and how we can use it to, to uh, develop a positive doctrine and how we can use the operations of historical investigation, tracing of cause and effect, and testing our means in order to really understand the best way to go about things. And we know that study of history is fantastic, but we have to be careful of the pitfalls that come with vanity and ignorance. And with that, I want to transition into a, a very special interview with a friend of the show named Rex. Here to help me analyze these themes of critique, avoiding vanity, and looking at ourselves in ways that we can progress forward is a good friend of mine and a longtime friend of the show, uh, a great fighter out of Dur de Marion. Rex, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be on your show. It's always a pleasure to be around you. Uh, it's been great being friends with you, and I, it's an absolute honor to be able to answer these questions and help you all figure some things out. Well, I, I, I appreciate it, sir, your, your, uh, your words uh, humble me, but, uh, let's, uh, let's spread your pedigree real quick. What, what, what is your war gaming experience? Okay. Well, uh, we'll start with the shorter one and that's, uh, uh, Warhammer 40 K. I play Necrons. Uh, I really like them cause there's a whole lot of versatility with them. Uh, and who doesn't like 
uh, undead, never dying robots. I mean, that's 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 pretty great, just right out the bat. It's pretty sweet. Yeah, it, it's great. Um, and uh, as far as Belagarth goes, I for the first two years of my seven year career here, I ended up running a small community that wasn't Belagarth because we didn't really know what Belagarth was yet, and it, the realm was known as Oldania. Uh, after that two years, we ended up joining the Belagarth community and came out to Bel- uh, to a Sage Hill event for the first time. And I think there was 10 to 15 of us. We all had the same garb. We all had very similar weapons, all the big foam <laughs> brick weapons. It, and ever since then, uh, I fell in love with the sport. I ended up moving to Nashville and made Dirt of Marion my local field. And went to my first Beltane, and I think I'm hooked for life. Well, that's outstanding. And, and it doesn't surprise me a wink that you had such a positive introduction to the community and to the sport, because Sage Hill and Dirt Marion, let me, let me just tell you right now, I, I had a similar experience with them. I was down in Christiana and kind of uh, went back back and forth between like Murfreesboro, Smyrna, and, uh, and Nashville. And I just, I loved going, they were smaller more skill-based, but like the, the Sage Hill practices were a lot of fun. I liked the folks there. And then, then you had Dirt of Marion, which was like the big stage, you know, like the massive field there at Elmington Park and, and so much to learn from too. You have so many different styles going on there. Like you have the Knights, you have the Monsters, you have Triad, you have uh, Vorshin, you have so many different ideas that are going on out there. Uh, where do your ideas fit into that? What, what is your kind of strategy when you're out there? Well, uh, there is an incredible, and you're absolutely right, there's an incredible amount of skilled fighters and so many different tactics. And a lot of the tactics that I see are more predominant are your knights and your more uh, Hulner-based people who like to get out (laughs) on the field. Uh, So I found monster mentality. Uh, I've always kind of been a monster at heart. And once I found out what a monster was, I signed right up. And my tactic on the field and my tactic to kind of counter these is exactly that, to be their counter. If they, you get out on the field and be serious, well, I'm going to break that train of thought. I'm going to break that uh, you know railroaded vision that you have of uh, succeeding and uh, how, how you step into the combat. I'm going to try to unstep how you stepped. Well, from that from that idea, um, you know, I might make the uh, the assumption at that point that the style that you use isn't hard and fast. It's not something that you necessarily would sit and practice with forms or something along those lines, but more of a refinement of your observation in order to be able to look at your opponent and in an instant, like the the idea of Kudel, uh, be able to assess the proper way to to counter that person. But that's more about training oneself. For the proper reflexes than for actual moves, yeah? Oh yeah, absolutely. My greatest asset is adaptability. To understand what where the opponent is coming from and to piece together what's going to come next, next, sometimes faster than they do. If I can get ahead of that and break, like I said, break their, uh, you know, because a lot of a lot of fighters, whenever they get out on the field, they get they get very one trained thought. Okay, I'm going to throw this shot. I'm going to go up here. You know, oh, I see a little weakness on them, so I'm going to go for it. And monster mentality is we exploit that. 
You know, I may drop my shield a little bit more and yell at you and show you body language wise that that's a weak spot on my body. However, I'm pulling you in. I'm trying to um, counteract and be a step ahead of where you want to throw it and kind of pull you into my own trap, uh, I, I guess you could say. And fight on your own terms, which uh, everybody we've studied says is a good idea. You pull people onto your ground where you have the uh, the advantage. I mean, that's just proper military science right there. Absolutely. You know, if I if uh, me yelling at you causes you to break your train of thought, then you're you're fighting on my territory now. If uh, I'm able to uh, use my body language and my presence to throw you off, well, guess what? We're on my territory now. I've got the advantage. And, and in that same way, like that is another manipulation of the field, you know, between between the, the presence that you're talking about, the yelling, the beating of the shield, the, the general drawing of attention. You know, this has been a very similar tactic used throughout the ages. The Scots would use bagpipes, you know, other other groups would be using horns or just screaming. And what this does, it's not just an intimidation factor and, and holding people in their place, which I'm sure you've noticed, too. But it's also a matter of disrupting the opponent's communications. You know, if I'm sitting there trying to give directions, and I and and I say, you know, something, and you're countermanding it, or over over. Uh, I mean, there's there's units and whatnot that rely on that sort of uh, communication, and if that's being disrupted, well, that's a tactical advantage right there. Absolutely, absolutely. If I hear another uh, enemy yelling orders or telling someone to go left or go right, I'm going to do my best to either mimic that voice as close as I can and start off either copying their orders to add more confusion or just to give them a, a sense of they don't know where their commanding officer is coming from or where those orders are coming from or even just adding that slight hesitation of, wait, did my commander say that or did my unit leader say that? That, that already is adding... Uh, you know, a higher percentage, even even though it's small, a higher percentage of victory to our side. Sure, sure. And and once again, <clears throat> we see that presence of a, of like a, a reactionary style, where you're looking at your opponent and and measuring the weaknesses, seeing the communication weaknesses or whatever, and and being able to formulate a counter to that. But the 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 way that you're doing, for instance, I use a lot of forms. When I'm practicing on my own, do a lot of shadow boxing, um, which again, you know, it's, it's kind of like a one-sided system. You know, like for instance, Tai Chi. Tai Chi is not a battlefield <laughs> uh, martial art. Now it can contribute, it can help out, but you know, Tai Chi itself isn't the thing. And my forms are also not the thing. But that's something that I can refine, something that I can critique and and do so purposefully. But with what you're, it sounds like you're doing, which is very much field experience based. How does critique factor into your technique? Critique factors in is always different based on different opponents. Uh, maybe I didn't learn them fast enough, or maybe their well of knowledge was deeper than what they led on. Uh, a lot of the critique that can go off of me is, whenever I critique myself, is whether did I read them fast enough? Am I paying attention? And am, am I being aware? Because... Now, I, I normally fight with a flail, and I know most other Bellagrim hate that, but you know what? I'm glad you hate it. But with a flail, we're a lot slower. And so to be able to to critique, 
because a lot of this sport is speed-based. So in order to critique myself, it's usually reliant on how much information did I pull. And a lot of losses are either sometimes being outskilled, which is, yeah, that's, that's normal, that's fine, you know. Uh, but if I read them wrong, or I uh, stepped to the wrong side of them, or strafed. If I strafed to the to the right and meant to go left, uh, that that is usually where some of the harshest critique on myself comes from. With it being just a reactionary basis, you can't really say, okay, well, this shot this shot always works for me because it's not always going to work, and it's hard to critique oneself, especially with a flail fighter because we have a series and a multitude of different shots that we can throw. Relying on one shot is hard to critique yourself on. And and I imagine with the flail, it's it's even more difficult to get outside sources too. Because if you're using a two-handed weapon, like a two uh, a short two-handed sword, there's there's manuals out there in German longsword that you can go and consult on how to do that better. If you're trying to do two stick, and especially if you're using uh, you know speed bats, well then going and learning some some kali or or uh, a, a similar. Um, you know, stick-based combat, you know, those things can absolutely help. And there's a lot of, there's a wealth of knowledge out there for folks who use those styles. But to my knowledge, nobody wrote a treatise on the, the flail like we have, because again, the flails that we use are not the same as the flails that you would have seen back in the way when. Um, so it really is kind of an individual art that, that has to be practiced as such. Absolutely, you know, and I know this sounds kind of crazy, but uh, I used to swing poi a little bit, and that kind of helps with the understanding of how momentum travels in a circle, and mm. learning how that momentum travels in a circle helps with pulling that to the flail. Now, it doesn't directly correlate because your circle is at the end of the stick now, but mm -hmm. that momentum, understanding how to carry that momentum and how... Uh, Carrying that momentum can lead to the fastest reset or to the next mm -hmm. shot. A lot of flail fighters uh, are com use combos because one shot leads to the next shot. And since we're slower, we have to precise our shots in different quadrants that we're attacking to put our uh, opponent on a higher defense to make them focus more on the defense because we are slower than they are. Sure. That, that makes a lot sense uh, a lot of sense to me uh, just making sure that you're keeping them guessing right and on on the back foot absolutely and, and kind of circling back without the the hard knowledge of of like a German longsword manual or a fencing manual um, is there any outside sources that you use any sort of um, exterior studies that contribute to your fighting or to your, to your field presence I I do pull from the art of war. I think the Art of War has really good tactics, really or really good understanding of a, of a monster mentality. And just in the first line, it says all war is deception. And that's kind of how monsters thrive. You know, uh, we're going to take the best path to success. Um, you know, that might not be the best morally speaking or Hunar based, but our goal is to win. And we're going to make that happen either way, you know, right. and it, it sounds, it also sounds silly, but villains, villains from all types of stories, from Disney, from Marvel, you can learn a lot from being how to be a bad guy, how to be successful and how to make sure that you 
Um, take the cheapest shot you can that gives you the highest reward. Sure. And and for clarification for our listeners, there is a difference between honor and honor. Like he was saying, honor is something that every single one of us should have. It's taking your shots. It's being a good community member. It's being you know a, a decent person. That is honor, as it were, and everybody should practice that. But honor, the monster cons or the the monster concept of honor, is like what knights do: not stabbing each other in the back, or if they drop their sword, they allow them to pick it up. But uh, we monsters, we function a little bit different on that one, don't we, Rex? Oh, yeah. If you drop your weapon, it's over, buddy. I'm sorry. I mean, I, I just won a practice green tournament because I made the ref and my opponent look at his footing because he was standing close to the edge. And as soon as he looked, I jumped at him. And it caused him to step out and me win the tournament. That's right. It was perfectly legal, but it was sneaky. Sneaky like a monster. Absolutely. The deception is the best. If I'm going to win, I'm going to take every option that I can, because if not, then it was less than perfect battle for me. And you also have to work with the means available, you know, like with a, a much larger unit, there's more room for that sort of behavior. But when you're dealing with like, you've got a smaller crew rolling with the, the Dead River uh, right there, right? Yeah, absolutely. We've got five or six, you know, six or seven of us and really only like three or four fighters. And right. uh, so getting onto the field uh, is going to be challenging, you know, and right. I think uh, a lot of it is going to be deal making. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it, if you ever get a chance, you should ask Arshank and Tandar why they won't ever make a deal with me on the field. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, I think uh, we're really going to have to strive on that a- adaptability and ha- strive on making the best of what we're being fed with right now to how can we overcome victory with this. Sure, sure. Because, yeah, you guys have your work cut out for you, no doubt. Uh, absolutely. So, and one of the things that I am admiring about this idea of almost an entirely reactionary and uh, counter-based system is that it is literally the opposite of what Clausewitz warns us of when he talks about the one-sided system, right? Where it's very much an internalized thing. Like, I mean, when I was doing the Gladiators uh, the very first year, I wanted it to be perfect when it came to forms. And so I taught them all proper formations and we moved around and they, and they fought one another in this style. And it worked really well until they hit the real battlefield with the real fast motion and the inability to really maintain those, those rigid formations. And that one-sided system did not benefit them. My first students were not benefited because I, but what I was thinking was one-sided and it didn't actually match up to reality. But it sounds like what you guys are doing, what your, what your talent is, is completely the opposite of that. You don't have to struggle with that because you're dealing with reality and you're, you're making your doctrine from that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, a lot of, in my, in my experience, the best way to grow is to do it. Yeah, we can sit on the sidelines and we can practice and we can fight one another and fight one another and fight one another. But if I'm not fighting you in that mind frame of being uh, adaptable and being uh, fluid to your actions and working off of what you're throwing at me, then I'm not growing. Yeah, I can practice this shot and practice this shot and practice this shot. But the more useful skill is going to be 
the adaptability and how quick can I learn? How quick can I read my opponent? And how quick can I interrupt what you have planned? And I imagine even things like poker might, might help you to be able to do that as well because you're practicing reading your opponents there and you're trying to make snap decisions based on what you think they're going to do. I, I would think that that would be a really good spot to practice these skills as well. You know, I never have thought about that. You know, I've, uh, I've always seen, uh, Bellic, you know, monsterdom as a, uh, uh, how do I explain it? Like a giant elephant on the field that nobody ever wants to address. <laughs> how, I, however, we are there. And I, I never think of it as in like hiding my true emotions. Like I guess in poker, you know, you, you use your poker face to hide who you truly are, but on the field, it's as a monster dumb, it's opposite, you know. And what I mean by big giant, the, the big elephant on the field is that's who I am on the inside whenever I'm right. out there. That's who I, uh, I portray to be uh, that monster dumb, that core mentality deep down. And I, th- I kind of think that that kind of leaks out of everybody when they hit the field. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different um, writers on the subject, and, and folks like Musashi who talk about the fact that you don't really know somebody until you fight them, that you haven't really expressed yourself until you are on the field. And at that point, you can truly know oneself. And it's interesting to see the ways that people go. You know, like I'm, I'm kind of the opposite. I, I tend to get very cold and very focused. Uh, there's a reason that I chose the snake as like my, my totem for this great hunt, for instance, because I just, I, I get still and look for that moment. And that's kind of the way I think, cold, mathematic, calculating, that sort of thing. But for those of us with more bombastic personalities who fill a larger space, and <laughs> it's, it's, it's just totally different, uh, you know, forms of field control. Around me, I create a stillness that is pregnant with violence. And around you, you have this, this presence of chaos, right? This presence of just energy that's like, how do I deal with that? A real big benefit of this style is that you have no idea what I'm going to do next. Not a clue. And a lot of the the more cold-natured, the more still, the more rigid fighters, they kind of have a uh, a schedule that they go by whenever they fight. And that schedule can be read. It can be telegraphed. You throw two shots, and I know your two top shots are now, essentially. Right. And, but whenever you come to fight in a flail, and this is how I'm able to handle people like Talon or someone like Shadow, that how I'm able to go toe to toe with these people is because I I try not to let myself be telegraphed. I don't want you to know when I'm spinning. I don't want you to know when I'm going to grab that elbow. I don't want you to know whenever I'm going to pump a fake. And a lot of that comes from the chaos. It comes from the uh, your inability to read what I'm laying down, other than right. what I'm showing you or, or what I want you to believe. And that's that's the problem with being a fighter like myself who has who's who's striving to have a particular style or have a move set is is folks like you and and it's really a challenge for us to make sure that we're not rigid you know that we're also reading and reacting and making sure that we don't just go in and say okay you know I've got this one-sided system right I've got this way it's supposed to work in my head and then when you deliver it and it doesn't but but it's based on opportunities. Right? It's based on what we see across from us and being to read that. And that's what Clausewitz was also saying in this section, is the idea of you have your di- different doctrines, but they're useful at different times, and they're just tools in your pocket. 
So there's a time for, for rigidity and for you know, steadfastness. And there's a time for uh, unpredictability and, and, and ad adaptability, you know? And so being able to use both those tools, it's effective. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, the, uh, the sensible human being in me says, yes, absolutely. There is most definitely a time to be more rigid and to be more precise. And, with, and then there's a time to be chaotic and to stir the, the area of the arena, as you could say. But the monster side in me says, if I can sow chaos at any point in time, then I should sow chaos at any point in time to create a fa favorable environment for myself. Yeah. You could come at me as rigid as you want to. And rigid fighters, you know, we, we have quite a few of them in Dirt and Marion, and there's, no, there's nothing wrong with it. And I'm not bashing you if you are a rigid fighter. Do what works best for you. However, the more rigid you are, the easier it is to read you. And when someone who throws chaos, and I've seen it in tournaments, I've seen it, I've won an archery tournament because I was able to throw chaos. If throwing that, rigid people get thrown off of their railroad a lot faster than people who, who thrive off of chaos. And that and I think that's why most, you see a lot of effective monsters maybe win a tournament, or you see one on the field, and I'm sure just about everybody's got a story of a favorite monster of theirs, going berserk on the field because sometimes just like being in, in the the fluidity of being rigidness because it, it and following your pattern uh, being in rigidness there's also that same in chaos and it can be a lot stronger because if you're flowing and you're in the mood and you're 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 really fighting really well but without a pattern can be a very very dangerous opponent sure and i've seen it i mean i've, I've fought against against folks that use a similar uh mindset when they enter the field as you and i like i said i i'm looking to cross swords with you again i'm looking forward to it because it's it's always a joy to go against folks who who think uh the, the way that you i just like all the different styles it's it's absolutely outstanding but i would think that a part of that part of what you're seeing especially with the older like veteran fighters that you're able to beat is perhaps that there is some vanity at play there yes uh i vanity does play a huge thing in this sport you know and i think it's it can be a unit killer it can uh turn off the people who are joining your unit or the new fighters you know cuz yeah it does suck being new and it does suck trying to grind your skill to be better, to be on par with who you think is great. And one day you're going to get there. However, um, being bombarded by arrogance can also deteriorate your urge to want to play or to thrive to be better. Or it could be a more powerful motivator to be better than that person. However, it still is a negative perception of that, that person. And I, I think a good way to battle vanity is to understand and to tell yourself, yes, uh, I, I have, I have learned a little bit. Yes, I have gotten better. However, this is a game and just like any game and any, you name it, there's always a percentage of chance and that chance can always never swing your way. So if you, yeah. and, and you know, I'm, I'm big on, if you speak it out into the universe, it's going to come back and get you. So if, it's good to remind yourself that you are no different 
than that 18-year-old that just stepped out on the field for the first time. Oh, yeah. And and the lessons you're saying, you know, it doesn't matter if you are a a, a, a younger vet, as it were, somebody who's been doing it for eight years, and it, it doesn't matter if you've been doing it for 20 years. The, what you're saying absolutely is is legit because the second that we stop growing or the second that we start to think that we are the best, well, that's that's where we get frozen. But the issue is we don't stay on the top or whatever we considered the top at, at the time. Everything changes, and there's a you know there's a saying in the old west around here where there's always a faster gun coming over the horizon. I know you guys probably didn't have cowboys <laughs> out, out, out your direction as much. <laughs> yeah, I see enough. I see enough of the cowboy hats and cowboy boots to think we got some out here. <laughs> that's so strange. I'm like, you guys didn't even have that stuff going on, but, but that's a. <laughs> that's a I don't know either. Uh, however, <laughs> right, and that kind of goes off of uh, another mentality, and that's li- living in the now. You know, yeah, you you may be great. And you may be great right now, but you may not be later. And you may not be the next tournament winner. You know, uh, being humble is a very good character trait to have. It makes you an effective leader. It makes you an effective friend, partner. It just goes all the way around. And I think that just being a little bit of humble and understanding that, yes, I won this tournament. Re- you know, rejoice in it. Be proud that you won that. Absolutely. However... Don't make that, don't take that as in, you know, oh, I can win the next one because you may have gotten lucky or maybe, you know, I've got a rivalry with Boomy and I don't know if you know a guy named Boomy and I love Boomy. He is such. I love a guy named Boomy and if there's a worthy rival, he would certainly be it. Yeah. Well, it's Boomy with a B-O-O-M-I-E and uh, he's from. He's from Ashland out here, and he is a great fighter. And ever since I joined the sport, it has always seemed like we've been on par with each other. One event, I'll be better than him. The next event, he'll be better than me. Uh, There was an event I took him and Luke on on a 2v1 for a challenge that I was doing, and it took me forever to beat those two. And I look up to Boomy. If he's listening to this, I, I hope you know that, man. But he's a great fighter, and... Uh, as a as a rival, he's a very rigid individual, um, but he never lets vanity get to him. He uh, he is always pushing for everybody else to be better, always pushing uh, 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 for himself to be better. And I think uh, if we're talking about battling vanity and battling it, I think he's a good role model to go after. Sure, sure. I, I yeah, I I, I definitely uh, am on kind of the periphery. Of what's going on with Boomy, and I'm always surprised at how humble he is, especially because even even when I was out there sparring with him, he was already a good fighter, and it's been several years since I left, and he's only been getting better and better and better. But the fact that he's not full of himself is awesome, because like you say, you know it, that vanity it's it's a unit killer, it's a realm killer, and it's one's own personal style killer too. Absolutely. I try my best to, when I get out into the field to not think I'm the best. You know, I may be able to kill four, five, six, seven, eight people in a row. However, that that next round, I won't even I, I won't even kill one person, you know. And whenever I am getting frustrated with myself and saying, oh, I can do better than this and I can do better than this. Normally, I go and put my flail down and I go pick up an entire bag of rocks and just stand, get out on the field and throw rocks for 15, 20 minutes, two or three rounds or whatever, 
you know, one of my unit mates has like 50 something rocks and it is the best stress reliever. We've put them in blankets and launched them with catapults. You know, it's whenever I start feeling like I'm getting full of myself or I'm getting frustrated because I'm not as good as I used to be. That's usually my second favorite style is to pick up some rocks to try to, you know, it's a game. Remind myself that I'm out here to have fun and there's no it's no point in getting frustrated. There's no point in getting upset right. because that's time lost that I could have been happy playing my game. And 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 like you said that it doesn't serve us. It doesn't serve us at all to to be down on ourselves or to uh, you know fall into the dreadful should category, you know, like I should be doing better. I should be able to beat this person. You know, those those ideas are what bring us misery. They're, they're the, what bring us disappointment on the field and make us angry with ourselves, those shoulds. You, you want to. I want to beat the other person. When I look on the field for the last 20 years, I've looked around and I don't see friends. I don't see foe. I don't see level 100. I don't see level 1. I see target. I see threat. And, and I think that's a good way to think about it because it's always been that way and everybody has always been a threat. I don't care how long they've been in the sport or in the in the community, they can still kill me. Oh, absolutely. And I do my due diligence at Dirt of Marion to remind my own teammates that I can still kill them. Sometimes <laughs> after the match is over and maybe I got into a good fight and I'm still rolling really good, I'll post up against my own teammates and fight them out. And, to, you know, just... And it, it's... I, I To me... It's me still keeping them on my on their toes. It's me being able to have a laugh or you know try to get someone to crack up. Um, however, a lot of people don't trust me on the field, and you know what? That's fine. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard it from the man himself. The warrior spirit, the monster spirit, is alive and well in Durdamarian. Unfortunately for us, we have to cut it short here because we've we've hit the limit of this interview section, but. Rex, I feel like we could go on all night about this stuff, and you know, there's a probability that we might, and there's <laughs> certainly a high probability that hopefully you'll come back to the show. Oh, absolutely. I would love to come back. Um, and it's always a pleasure talking to you. I really am looking for our next few fights in, so the next time that we have gra- feet on the same ground, it, uh, I hope it's going to happen. And uh, man, it's really been an honor to be able to help share my what I see in the sport, and to sit here and talk with you. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming and, and speaking with us and presenting a, a unique worldview, one that uh, definitely challenges us to make sure that we're being adaptable and observing our opportunities. Now, it's that's a, some solid lessons you've got there, sir. And uh, we're going to see some of them play out as we move into our uh, history section dealing with the spring of 1793. back to revolutionary France. Last episode, we spoke about the revolution, or the counter-revolution, excuse me, in the western regions of France. We had the development of a extremely conservative religious element uh, that was resistant to the changes taking place in Paris. Also mad about everything else, you know, the, the food shortages and the mistreatment of people, like there's a whole lot of other things to be mad about. But being on the outs, 
ideological, uh, ideologically speaking, led to what we were talking about. And so that was a, a fairly brutal year in the western of France in 1793, and then it sort of broke down into a guerrilla war from then on out. But that wasn't happening all by itself. The rest of the French Republic was in trouble as well, because things were starting to fall apart a little bit. And we're going to talk about what was going on in the spring of 1793. So as we had discussed in previous episodes, the victory at Jemaps and Valmy, respectively, had led to an overconfidence in this Republican army. They had begun to see themselves as the righteous saviors of Europe, that their ideology was so powerful that it blew over the armies of the old regime, that there was no way that a monarchist, no way that a mercenary could stand against such strong values, right? And, and it's not like they'd been proven wrong. You know, these original forays into, the, into that particular conflict went very well. 1792 was banner for the Republican army. Just great. Of course, then people started to organize against them and realize the uh, severity of the threat coming out of France at the time. But they didn't care. And of course, this leads to vanity. And this leads to overreach, even in those who know better. And in February, uh, February of 1793, Dumouriez, or Dumouriez, or Dumouriez, or... I did, Again, I knew about as much French to uh, draw scathing looks <laughs> from folks in Paris. Um, I'm going to say Dumouriez because I like it. It sounds good. So Dumouriez launches this invasion of the Dutch Republic. Now, you'll remember that this was his pet project back in the when, too. He, that's where he went into and, and did the invasions before. He was also the one behind the victory at Shemops and Valmy. So he's been, he's been the overarching commander for this entire story. You know, Dumouriez has been pivotal. To everything we've been talking about. And so he wants to finish this, this what he had jobbed, and he invades the Dutch Republic. Because again, we had talked about it before, the Netherlands, the Dutch Netherlands, incredibly rich, incredibly influential, and they had a, a, the rest of the control of the English Channel. If the French could have them, they controlled the entirety of the English Channel, and the opening into uh, some of the important northern bodies of water as well. So this was important for them. Seizing, seizing control of this area, especially since it was in the hands of their enemies. So they definitely needed it. And it th seems to be going pretty well. They march across, and they've got a, a pretty strong army, of course, and they invade, and these, uh, the fortresses that they're after fall without any significant resistance, and these are the fortresses at uh, Klundert, Breda, and here's a fun one. This is Dutch. Geertruidenberg. Gertrudenberg. Yeah. Yeah, it's not as hard as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> uh, so those, those fall pretty easily, though. And at this point, they're on schedule to take The Hague and Amsterdam by mid-March. They are looking to take over this entire area by mid-March, and things are looking up for the French Republic on this little campaign. But it doesn't last long, because on the 1st of March, here comes Prince Coburg and his army of roughly 40,000. Now, Prince Coburg was a part of the Habsburgs, which were down there in the, the Austrian region. Very, very pivotal, very influential family. You recall that Marie Antoinette was from the Habsburgs. And so he shows up in, in, at the head of this coalition army, but it's, it's mostly Habsburgs. They're called a coalition army, but it's mostly uh, representative of the Habsburgs. And of course, they have uh, people from the Dutch Republic, too. Folks who were not pleased, folks who had to flee or had to retreat from it, who were coming back with a much larger force helping them. 
Um, but he, he kind of attacks the, the back line and he overwhelms the defenders and captures Aiken. And this is, a, this is an issue because it threatens that entire campaign, threatens the army that is, is extended to the north. And so this, uh, this doesn't come well. This, this already demoralizes an army that has been drained from desertion. You know, after, after everybody's uh, contracts are up in the late part of 1792, it's been hard to keep hands on people. And the ones that did stay around aren't staying very long because one of the big issues, apart from sanitation, I mean, you had people dry, dying in droves from uh, dysentery and, and similar things. It was a bad place to live, bad, bad time to be in the military. But also, there was no food. There's a bunch of political squabbling in Paris as the Girardins and the Gabarites and the Firmaderps and the Nurpaders and whatever the case may be were all trying to hash out exactly what it was they wanted to do and banging at each other in the council chamber. Meanwhile, the people in Western France, starving. The people in the army, starving. Real issues that need to get ironed out instead of just a politician's banging on tables in Paris. But it doesn't happen. And so they're losing people. They're losing people like crazy. And so Dumouriez comes back. He comes back to this, to this uh, he returns from the Dutch front, as it were, to confront uh, Prince Coburg. And he does so outside of a hamlet known as Neerwinden. Now, this, this conflict was, was kind of forced in a way. Obviously, Prince Coburg was coming up and he was intending on uh, kind of disrupting the invasion of the Netherlands, of the, of the Dutch Republic. But... There could have been a retreat. There could have been a repositioning. There's a lot of different options that were available here. But Dumouriez had had sensed at this time that the army was on the verge of moral collapse. You know, there, there's again, there's a lot of desertion. Just morale is at an all-time low. Discipline is, is failing. So a confrontation makes more sense. A retreat is going to just see the entire army dis, dis, disintegrate. A confrontation at least galvanizes people together. It's like, okay, we got to fight. We got to fight for my, my brothers in the trench, as it were. And so they, they seek this confrontation to kind of keep people together. And so they uh, come to come together with the, with the Prince of the Habsburgs here in near Winden on the 18th of March, 1793. And so who we had uh, kind of lined up on either side of the, of the field here is on one side, we have our French Republicans, as it were. And remember that Republican at this time means something totally different than what it means now. And they were under the command of Dumouriez. And they were about, and, and again, sources in this time are hard to discern. Because there's a lot of disagreement. One side will say this, one side will say that. And even within the same side, because the, of the chaos in France at the time, their records were terrible. So we don't even know from their records how many uh, people they had in their army, but it was somewhere between 40 and 47,000. A little bit of wiggle room there. So that's a decent-sized army. Then you had the coalition army of the Habsburgs and the Dutch Republic under command of Prince Coburg. And they were only 39 to 43,000. So they weren't significantly outnumbered, but by all accounts, they were, you know, outnumbered by at least a few thousand. But... The big thing that they had, and this you'll see as a deciding factor, is that they had twice the cavalry that the French Republicans did. That's the other issue. When you're talking about supply line issues, one of the first parts of the war machine to suffer when you have a supply line issue are the horses. 
They're not like tanks. You just leave them there and fill them up with fuel when they need it. Horses require quite a bit of feed, require quite a bit of rest and shoes, and there's a lot of care that goes into taking care of a good cavalry. And so at this point, their cavalry is, de is depleted because they haven't had the materiel, haven't had the means to take care of their cavalry, not in the same way that the Habsburgs have, coming in fresh. Coming in fresh. So Coburn sets up a screen of coalition troops that are kind of spread across his front in these, in these little villages. And already the map to me kind of looks like, like League of Legends in a lot of ways, where you have this, these like villages, these small points in between, and you have the larger army on either side. Like it's very kind of set up like that. So he's going on the defensive. You know, he's got, he's got uh, less people, but he also knows that they are drilled far better. Up until this point, the French have largely been winning because of numbers and a spirit decor. You know, they, they have been extremely motivated. Well, they are not as motivated now, but they still have that overwhelming numbers technique that they've been doing. And so he's, he's trusting in this drill. He's like, okay, I'm not going to try to meet them where they want to be met. We're going to be in a secure location in order to do this. So Dumouriez kind of comes up with this plan. And he's like, okay, we're going we're gonna to hit the center, of course, and we're going to kind of move up and down the line. But he wants to focus on what he would consider is the Coburg's weaker left wing, because that left wing is, is the part that connects him to his supply line, the part that connects him with his empire. And so, as we've discussed before, if you cut somebody off from their ability to, to get stuff and to get out, that is bad. That is very bad. So Dumouriez assumes, yeah, that's the places he's going to defend the best because supply line right there. So the French forces move forward, right? Move forward and they take the villages. And but it goes back and forth, back and forth for a long time of, of the, you know, the French holding it and the coalition folks holding it and back and forth. And eventually the French are driven off of it by Cav. Because the, the, Habsburgs have full control of the field when it comes to calf, just because of the sheer numbers of it. And so, you know, the, the, the center, which is where that is, is kind of come crumbling. The forward progress that's being tried to be made is being pushed back. And so that's not, that's not great. Dumouriez is sensing that weakness. And so he tries for a Hail Mary on his right, right? Going after that weaker left wing, but it fails. It fails. Uh, and, and again, a huge part of this was the number of horse. These little skirmishes, these little sorties that are taking place on the um, outskirts of a battle that decide how your cavalry, how your, your flankers are going to be able to get into position, how harried they are going to be, how much freedom they have to move with. This is decided by those little skirmishes. And when you're dealing with twice as many cav, I mean, think about it on, on a fighting field. Let's say on one side, you have twice as many really good flankers. Uh, that battle is going to go very one-sided, at least when it comes to that, unless, unless a very clear plan is in position to deal with that element, unless they had had a clear plan to deal with the increase of horse on the other side of the field, they're in a bad position because the cow loved how they were spread out. And so he tries that Hail Mary and it fails, right? The center isn't doing well. He tries the right and it, and it holds strong too. And then the left wing collapses. And, you know, a good portion of this is from the military effort. You know, uh, Prince Coburn was no slouch and his troops were no slouches. But also on this side, um, there's just, again, that low morale. 
And once the desertion starts and once people start running from the front line, it turns into a wave. And so the army itself, Dumouriez has to retreat the entire army because there's a threat of rout at the time. If he didn't retreat, then, you know, the, the, it might just disintegrate into complete disarray and then, you know, goodbye command staff and all that sort of thing. And so he has to, has to kind of pull out and return with his tail between his legs. But not quite. Because our Dumouriez has a secret. At this point, he turns traitor. He starts working with the enemy, conspiring on how they are going to be able to march against Paris. Even walking and, and touring the city with, uh, with officials <laughs> from the Habsburg. And when his, when his plot is uncovered, when, he's, when they become aware of the fact that he is not true, he defects. And this is on the 5th of April, so just the next month. But what's interesting here to me is that Dumouriez, this entire time, remember, 1792, when they were knocking out all of these victories, those your vamps, fall me, everything in between, like it was a really good time. And he was in charge of all that. But he's a monarchist. He hated the politics of Paris, hated them. I mean, hard not to, but... You know, that was not something he was about. And then when they executed King Louis XVI, he was sad about it. He was upset. His whole thing is he wanted to return to the time of the constitutional monarchy. That's what he liked. It was good stuff. So I just find that very interesting, though, because if you think about it, this guy could not have been personally more at odds with his country at this time. Because it had swung wildly toward the revolution. And you, again, you had this bickering in Paris that was causing... Uh, waves of dissent to move out across the entire country, which again, most people I can understand not liking that, but he's a monarchist and he did so well. Like this is, this is a professional. Let me just say, Dumouriez was a professional. He didn't like these people. <laughs> he liked the king and yet he still went forth and kicked butt. I mean, yeah, he lost here, but not because, not because he threw the game, not because he threw the match. He lost because he was maneuvered upon and because his army was tired and they didn't like him. They didn't want to fight no more. Hard to make an army fight when it doesn't want to fight. So I just find him an interesting character. I think Dumouriez is a, again, he's, he's kind of fascinating in that way to me because, because again, he's, he's a stone cold professional. The man, the man knows his trade. He does his craft and he honors his duty. I think that's a huge part. We've, we've kind of seen this trend in some of these older members of the military establishment, even in post-revolution France, who are monarchists, who are still very much entrenched with the old ways. And that's the way that they were. You know, they came up in these ways. They they came up and they, they were monarchists. They had sworn oaths of the king and, and things like this. But you have to understand that they also felt that they had a duty to their station and to the army itself, to the country itself. Even if the king wasn't necessarily in charge at the time, there was a strong sense of duty. You just have to admire that in somebody like Dumouriez, somebody who just wanted to do right by his country. Now, the, the sneaking around and the, the traitor stuff at the end, again, one can even understand that, really. Because as an army man, as somebody who's been trying to win the wars of the Republic for the past year, he's seen it. He's seen the, the deprivation for his soldiers. He's seen them sick. He's seen them hungry. He's seen them freezing. That had to have had an effect on the man. That had to have him sitting there wondering if, if what they were doing was right. If who they were fighting for and what they were fighting for was right. If it was so right, 
then why were these folks being treated this way? Why was the army suffering as much as it was? Why were people so angry and feeling so left out of this if everything was so right? We take these ideals for granted now, these ideals that like, you know, Locke and Rousseau presented during this time. These ideals of, you know, truth and liberty and and it, basically, you talk to any democracy these days, and they parrot these the, the same things that were being discussed by the the Giridans at this time. You know, they, they, this influenced world politics, but it was being figured out. That was a violent time because it was being sifted. And when you have change, when you have a new solidification of a new code, it's violent. Everybody wants their opinion heard. Everybody, and, and it's a, a massive shouting match. But again, things get forgotten. Things get overlooked. And in this particular case, it was the men who were fighting for the country were being overlooked. So you can understand. You can understand how a career man like Dumaret would look at the situation and say, you know, it was almost better under the old regime. Like they may have had had supply issues because Lord knows there was that fair share of them. The, the pre previous two administrations, I say that as though they were elected, but the previous two kings weren't that great. King Louis Fourteenth, awesome. You know, he was, he was a, a bamf. Europe knew when he was around, what was it? A dog didn't bark in France except by his permission was what was said. I mean, that guy, that guy. But then you had the, the, his, his successors the 15th and the 16th, who were not as good and had to deal with different situations as well and just were not as apt at doing so. But at the very least, they weren't overthrowing the country on the premise that they were going to make things better, that the monarchy was, was the reason why things were going poorly. And if they took power, there was going to be bread for everyone and equality and, and, a, and better life for everyone. And that just wasn't happening. Where was it? Where was the delivery for the poor, poor folks starving in Western France? who couldn't practice their faith? Where was the, the deliverance for the poor folks in the military off fighting the wars of, of these ideals only to be overlooked, left behind? So even though, again, I, we may look at it and, and despise Dumouriez for being a traitor, but it was only after a point, and you really have to look at his life and the situation and really think. I, I know this is a complete aside from uh, from the military example that we're trying to talk about. But I just find him fascinating. I find this entire chapter of his life fascinating. I would, I would recommend looking into him. I plan on doing so. I don't, if anybody can recognize, uh, recommend a good biography, I would love it. But we can see here some of the issues that we had discussed in the first section. For one thing, vanity. Even though Dumouriez seems to be a pretty intelligent dude, there was vanity at place after the victories at Jemaps and Valmy, how, how couldn't you? How would you not feel good about oneself? How does one not think of oneself as being good or better after stunning victories like that? There's, of course, these ideals that they're applying, these doctrines that have not been tested by actual military experience. But it's just, this is going to work because it has to work, because... It's the revolution, and these ideals have to work. But as we've seen before, these, these tactics, even when the French army was at its best, they just sort of threw people. They didn't have the precision that, that the other professional armies did. Sort of threw people at the position and eventually overwhelmed them with sheer numbers of very, very, very motivated people. And at this point, they're not motivated anymore. 
So the means, right, the means changed, where at once, you know, France had a scrappy young army, but that was very, very motivated and very into the ideals, and that was something. That was the means that they were using to prosecute their campaigns. But then it changed. Those means changed in, in 1793. That army that they previously had had diminished quite a bit. Hence the, the 300,000 strong levy that led to the, the, uh, the you know, the counter-revolution there in, in Western France. So a lot of those errors, a lot of those vanities reared their head in this particular case. And unfortunately, it, it led to a dark time for France. And we might get into a little bit of that next time. I'm not sure how far we're going to get in that, but I just wanted to make sure that we got through the Battle of Neerwinden this particular time. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earworm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm-hmm.